And so the season of Epiphany is made clear by the disciples' wish to see Jesus. Remember that in John's gospel? Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We wish to really have him revealed to us. And then I think Epiphany is well marked by these two invitations of Jesus who said, first, come and see, and then said, go and tell. Now, a number of weeks ago, so this, this is going to shift from a moment of sermon to a moment of leadership. A number of weeks ago, I can't remember how long, maybe 8, 10, 12 weeks ago, I was thinking about us and thinking about our role in this community and how for two years we really have just kind of given ourselves with humility like students to learning liturgy and learning a way of worshiping that draws together sacrament and word and worship and prayers and teaching and how we've just been sort of giving ourselves to that. But it hit me one day, and I want you to look at the front of your bulletins. For the first year and a half or so that we were together, we had two paragraphs on the front of this bulletin. The middle one did not exist. But I had a little sort of moment of of pastoral crisis when I thought to myself, this cannot be about us. And so I wrote this little paragraph. Liturgy is not the deluxe or heavy-duty version of Christian worship. It was not created for deep Christians, you know, like everybody in Orange County who's just sick of regular church, and they just need something more, you know, they just want to be a little deeper. Liturgy is not merely the domain of the especially intelligent or those who are oriented to literature or to church history or to high forms of church. Liturgy and the prayer book are for everyone. They're for beginners and for the barely churched. These spiritual practices are for the spiritually hungry. They're for those who are seeking training and obedience to God and his purposes for our lives. And so this epiphany, I just want to put a little marker in our minds that says that um, those of us who have had Jesus manifest to us by the Spirit of God and because of the grace of God that it's not enough to just pay attention. It's not enough even to be astonished by what's revealed to us, what's manifested to us, but there is this dimension to epiphany of telling about it. And this is the drama that we hear about in our gospel reading this morning. Uh, Mark tells us that John came with this message. I like the way that uh, the message gets it, where Eugene has it saying, the real action comes next. The star in this drama, to whom I'm a mere stagehand, will change your life. I'm baptizing you here in the river, turning your old life in for a kingdom life. His baptism, a holy baptism by the Holy Spirit, will change you from the inside out. And then the text says, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you And I want you to hear the particularity of that because it's so important to our conversation with the world today. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Well, one of my favorite commentators, Tom Wright, commentating on this says that he, he sees John's message kind of working like this for Israel. He says, you've ever been sound asleep and dreaming when suddenly a door or, you know, somebody pulls the blinds or something and, you know, bright light is suddenly in your face 
And maybe, you're, maybe you can think of growing up or something, your big sister's in the hallway saying, get up, get up, you're going to be late for school, right? Those kind of moments where you're kind of a bit dizzy by what's going on. Well, John the Baptist was very much like that to the Jewish people of his day. John's ministry burst in upon them and surprised his Jewish world. Many had wanted a Messiah that they thought would lead them to victory against the Romans. None of them had anticipated somebody calling for repentance. None of them had ever stopped to think that somehow they were an issue in this problem. To them, it was the Romans and, you know, their occupying of their land and and their oppression, and that was all true. But John the Baptist was like splashing cold water all over them and telling them to get ready for the greatest moment in Jewish history, in world history. And so what we see here this morning in Jesus' baptism, and that we see in the baptism that we'll do in a few minutes, is that baptism is kind of a symbol. It's, it's a symbol of exodus, of, of rescue from Egypt through the Red Sea, but John is putting a bit of a twist on it here. When he's saying, I want you to come down to the River Jordan, come through the water and be free. So in the same way the ancient Jews were to leave behind Egypt, that is to say the world of sin in which they were living, the world that was rebelling against the living God was invited down to the river to turn around and to go the right way, to stop sleeping, to stop dreaming, to wake up to God's reality. And so epiphany, if you think of it as God's manifestation of himself in Christ or his revealing of himself in Christ, it begins with a self-giving, self-revealing God. This is why we read the Genesis passage this morning. It's, the Genesis passage says essentially this, first this, God created the heavens and the earth. All that you see and all that you don't see. As the message has it, earth was a soup of nothingness, a bottomless emptiness, an inky blackness. And God's spirit brooded over it like a bird. It brooded over this watery abyss. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. Now that's fascinating. What does he mean when he said it was good? Like effective? It, you know, go out in the sunlight and it warms our skin and it feels good? Um, Good in the sense that it was functional, meaning light came from the sun? So did he create like a universe and look at it and go, hey, I think this will really work? Now, I think there's an ethical dimension, to, ethical dimension to this word good. That light, revelation, manifestation, truth, uh, accuracy, reality, um, true perception, having a right angle on something, the capacity to see is good. There's an ethical component to the goodness of being able to see the truth. And again, if we're going to engage in our world today and honest, if we're going to be honest, healthy conversation partners with our world today, this is one of the things that we're going to have to help people to see. Because right now in much of contemporary society, the sign that you're truly intelligent is that you're skeptical of everything. That's the sign of true intelligence these days. Only a Neanderthal would believe that something's actually true in sort of a plain, obvious way. If you're really smart, you doubt everything. 
And the way you prove your smartness is your ability to deconstruct anything. And uh, this, is, this is just plain and simple out there all over today. But God said there was light. There was the capacity to see his revelation, the capacity to see his manifestation of his son, Jesus, and that this was good. It was ethically good. It was morally good. It was relationally and socially good. But the notion today is, is that to contend for truth is socially bad. It's relationally bad. And that unless we embrace a kind of mindless pluralism, we're somehow gonna continue to harm each other. But the ethical dimension of God's light says that no, once somebody can really see light and see what light reveals, that that's actually a good thing. And it's not just a good thing for the winners. I know lots of you weren't here last week because it was uh, New Year's Day, but we talked about this last week. The part of what's going wrong, if we're gonna have a conversation in the next few weeks about the church conversing with the world, part of what's going wrong is this. We used to be the winners. And we had a very privileged high position in society. And essentially what the world is saying back to us is you blew it. You blew it in hating homosexuals. You blew it in hating Islam. You blew it basically I don't mean to pick on anybody, but just sort of the attitude of the whole religious right thing. You basically blew it through Christian media. We don't like you. We don't trust you. We don't want to be in conversation with you. And if we're going to be able to re-engage, we have to re-engage based on a basic fundamental knowledge, but knowing that we no longer have that privileged position in society, and now our conversations with the world have to be way more egalitarian. Uh, the world, the, the world from, uh, or the time from World War II to about somewhere in the mid-90s, let's say, was marked by Christians talking, speaking, crusades, uh, evangelistic meetings, tracks, radio shows, TV shows, because when we had this privileged position, we could sort of talk down to people. But now that that privileged position is gone, it doesn't mean that we give up on what we know to have been revealed to us. It doesn't give, mean we give up on what we know to have been manifest to us. It just means now we have to not tap into the persuasive power of speaking, but the persuasive power of listening. I want to suggest to you, unless we're willing to sit down with that 15-year-old girl whose who's junior high pastor abused her, or that 17-year-old boy whose dad acted like a Christian but had a whole house full of pornography and hear their stories and really listen to the deep pain in their heart, the actual confusion that blinds them, the darkness that is actually in them. You know, this, this is a basic scripture. The God of this age has what? Blinded the hearts of people. That's still true. That wasn't just true in the 70s. That's still true maybe more true. It's just that the key to get to that part of people's heart is no longer just speaking at them. Now you have to think of the persuasive power of listening as a way to unlock people's hearts. Because here's what I found. When I sit and listen to young people, it may take hour after hour after hour to let them unpack their heart. Here's what always happens. Well, nine times out of 10. Here's what always happens. When they've let it all out, they sit back in their chair at a coffee shop somewhere, 
and their shoulders relax, and they go, so what do you think? Well, now I get to talk. So mark this deep in your brain somewhere. Conversation is not compromise. Conversation is an act of love. It's an act of generosity. It's an act of creating space. It's an act of saying, I think you actually could teach me something. Tell me what you experienced, because I think your experience is valid. Not just the apologetic stuff I have to tell you to defeat the darkness in you, but no, your story itself could teach me something. And unless you sit there really listening to people, then we're not going to have very much of an epiphany kind of conversation with them where we can engage with them in a way that actually makes sense. So this is what the psalmist is getting at when he says the voice of the Lord over the waters is powerful, that God thunders across the waters. Brilliant is his voice and his face. It streams brightness. So Jesus said it says of himself, remember in the Gospels, I am the light of the world. Then he said to us, you're the light of the world. You're a city set on a hill, so let your life shine. These are the two aspects of epiphany manifestations, God being manifest to us and us as his apprentices working with him for this ongoing manifestation to the world. So Thomas Merton, who some of you will know, has said that this way, he's talked about epiphany this way, we've seen the great light of Christ and therefore we're obliged by the greatness of the grace that has been given us to make known the presence of the Savior to the ends of the earth not only by preaching the glad tidings of his coming, but all but revealing him in all of our lives. And this is why in our Acts passage this morning that Paul was so um, anxious to make sure that these people had not only been baptized into John's baptism, which was a sort of setting aside, this is overstate, I mean, this is oversimplifying, but for the sake of time, sort of setting aside your errant Jewishness, your errant way of thinking about what God and what God's up to, come to the river, repent, change your thinking about all that. But there's this person, Jesus, coming, who he's going to baptize you actually into a whole different kind of life. And that's what Paul was so anxious that they had. Not only a rethinking of everything, which is unspeakably important, but that they'd been given this new kind of life. And of course, what Paul is simply reflecting on, think of it this way, Paul's reflecting on what Jesus modeled that God wanted to have happen, and that is this, that after we hear in baptism, whenever we come to a baptism like this morning, we're gonna hear something like, you are my daughter with whom I am well pleased or you are my son with whom I am well pleased. And what Paul wants to have happen here is a mirror of Jesus' story, that these disciples in Acts would hear, you are my daughters, you are my sons with whom I am well pleased. But after Jesus had that experience, anybody remember what, we didn't read it this morning, but anybody remember what comes next? Jesus was driven into the wilderness by what? Unfortunate political circumstances? He lost his job. No, he was driven by this spirit into the wilderness. And Paul wants to make sure that these guys realize that the reception of the spirit is not primarily about enjoying its private benefits, as real as important as that is. 
But the Spirit was the Spirit for mission. Jesus was sent on a mission that resulted in his brutal, unfair execution. And so occasionally, when I hear, I don't know why I always pick on Bill Maher, but when I hear Bill Maher say something rude or whatever, of course I sometimes you know, get irritated by it, but you know, I just have to think, I'm not being hung on a cross unfairly here. None of us are being sent into Roman Colosseums to be eaten by animals. Nobody in my whole lifetime has been set on fire and used as a garden party for Nero. What we have around us is a cynical society. And here's what happens. The Holy Spirit goes, whoosh, and he sends you. Because what Jesus said is true. You, me, we are the light of the world. We are a city set on a hill. And a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. The only way it's hidden is if we begin to lose in somewhere in our deepest considerations that there is an ethical goodness to light. But if we keep listening to the pushback from the world that says, no, every time you get specific about Jesus, you're a hater. Every time you make a, a differentiation between Jesus and his what he's up to on the earth and let's say Hinduism or Buddhism or something, you become a hater. Well, then we begin to bury the light and that's no good for anybody. But Epiphany rather invites us into just living a kind of life that is a light on a hill. So let me finish by saying this. My hope is that in these weeks of Epiphany that a couple of things have happened. That will let Epiphany, this revelation of God, convert us as we go through these weeks of worship, that it would just continue to convert us so that we can participate in the conversion of others. What makes me write things like that little middle paragraph in the front of our bulletin, there aren't very many days that go by when I don't, this thought doesn't come through my mind, that I was at one time really far from God and really did not want anything to do with light. I wanted to be a major league baseball player and do all the sex, drugs, and rock and roll I possibly could. As much as I could fit into one lifetime, that was my goal. I wanted nothing to do with church. The Jesus, I grew up here in Santa Ana, the Jesus movement was swimming all around me. Kids were dropping like flies. Every Monday morning, some cool kid would come back and say he got saved, and I'm like, whatever. Um, I just wanted anything. I did not want anything to do with it. I was actually trying to snuff out the light that the Holy Spirit was doing all around me, actively trying to snuff it out. And I'm so glad for that kid on the baseball team at Cal Poly, Tim. Every day after practice, Todd, you want to come to church with me this Sunday? I'm like, whatever, dude. I don't go to church. Over and over and over, day after day, week after week. Till finally I relented just so he'd quit bugging me. And went to church, a little Baptist church in Riverside, California that had been converted into a Calvary chapel, packed with hundreds and hundreds of people my age, kids sitting outside looking in through the windows. And I heard a simple little concert and a very simple little message, and I saw the light, and it broke the power of darkness. And that can and will continue to happen today as we begin 
to let this manifestation of God continue to convert us. In the words of our passage from this morning, maybe as we turn ourselves now to a moment of silence, maybe you just want to bow your head and close your eyes and just hear this as a way to continue our conversion in Christ. God looks at us and says, you are my dear, dear child. I'm delighted with you. You are my dearly loved daughter, my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. You are my sons and daughters, chosen and marked by my love, the pride of my life.